Hello, you're listening to The Future of Media Explained with me, Press Gazette, Editor-in-Chief, Dominic Ponsford. This week's edition is called Generative AI in the Newsroom, Part 2, Caution at the Guardian. Joining me, we have Press Gazette UK editor, Charlotte Tobin. Hi, Charlotte. Hello, Dom. So I hope we're not boring the listeners with our obsession with generative AI. But it does seem to be uh, yeah, a big talking point of the industry. Lots of people have got, you know, working groups on it. We've even got a working group at NS Media Group, haven't we, on that generative AI? Yeah, we're not hypocrites. We're into it as well. So last week we heard about, um, from Media How, about how they're using generative AI in the newsroom. This week we've gone to The Guardian, who historically have sort of been the cutting edge of news technology, really, for the last, well, as long as I can remember, really, the last 20 years or so. And they're sort of well into generative AI, but they're sort of talking really about why we need to be cautious and not rush in. It's fair to say there's a temptation in sort of publishing or in news publishing. There's, there's a sort of big element of sort of FOMO when you have uh, any sort of new technology that comes along. And that, I guess that's because previously there are things that publishers have been slow to adopt and then they really pay a price. So like if you were slow to get on Twitter, say it took you a long time to you know, get your followers up, or if you were slow to go on Facebook or something, or if you were slow to adopt SEO, you just saw rivals steal all your traffic. Yeah, you because know, it's such a competitive business as well. You worry that if you don't get ahead of the game with generative AI and this game-changing tech, you could be a bit worried about it, uh, but interesting to hear that broadly speaking, it sounds like the Guardian, uh, you know, investigated deeply, but uh, being a bit cautious about what you can do with it. Yeah, I think their approach sounds very sensible, to be honest. They're trying out a lot of things sort of behind the scenes, um, like within the newsroom, the tech teams are asking them, do you want to try this out? Would this be useful or not? And that's all good way of approaching it but they haven't actually deployed any of this yet and they are not in any rush to do so as our interviewee will explain i feel like we're having talked about this read about this quite a lot we're getting a good a better handle aren't we on what generative ai can and can't do and it's and i think i'm right in saying that you know it's quite good obviously at um sort of synthesizing a response based on a lot of previously published material but because it's basically a um a machine that predicts what word should go in front of the other based on the data it's got it's a very very bad idea to use it in the wild to tell readers sort of news or to tell readers verifiable facts it's that's not really what it does is it so it's, it's sort of it can hallucinate but it's also it, it's just a dodgy way to to do that isn't that is that fair definitely i mean yeah as as in terms of journalistic integrity but it comes up in the interview, but the hallucinations thing is a massive issue. Like even if you just try and get it to look at your own database of stories, for example, it will still just take stuff that's not even there. Um, if you're asking it to write a headline based on an interview piece, it might still use a quote in the headline that was never said. So that sort of thing is just really worrying for organizations that are based on trust and accuracy and being the legitimate sources of information in a world where there's so much misinformation and disinformation. So in that setting, it's, there's very good reason to be cautious. It's almost like you, you, you recruit the sort of perfect reporter who kind of turns up exactly on time every day, you know, writes 10 stories, 
doesn't make any mistakes, never asks for a pay rise, goes home, but then sort of every couple of weeks they sort of go out to lunch, get absolutely smashed and then come, come, come into the office and just sort of commit some terrible libel and come in on Monday and carry on working again. It's, sort of like, it's not quite the perfect employee, is it, Chat GPT? No, and raising the libel risk is a, so that comes up in the industry as well. And it's kind of a good example of why things like BuzzFeed trying it out for personality quizzes is very different to a news organization using it for the types of articles where, as you say, there's a lot more risk of libel or other legal risks. So it's just, it's news organizations have to treat it differently to other content businesses even. You spoke to um, the Guardian's head of editorial innovation. Chris Moran. So yeah, how did, how did you kick off the interview? So we got going by asking Chris how he and his team have begun experimenting with generative AI tools. I might track back a little to kind of November time. Okay. If that's right. So the Guardian's used AI and we have a fantastic data science team and we have done for three years, like many, in fact, a bit longer than that, actually. I think it might even be four or five. And like many other people in the industry, we've worked with projects and organisations, things like Journalism AI, run by Charlie Beckett out of Polis. And across that time, we've been thinking about how you can bring machine learning and data science into sharp focus around journalism and do things that you might not otherwise be able to do, find the places where it's useful. But in November with the, or October with the release of ChatGPT, it did feel like things were changing. And first of all, obviously, because that technology is distinct, although it's part of the AI group, it is a particular approach. And it is, at its best, really dazzling, but it also comes with some downsides. And so back then, I started playing around with it in my own time and just asking myself, what does it look like when you apply it to journalist use cases? And that work very quickly led me to start connecting with other people at The Guardian particularly on the public policy and copyright and intellectual property sites. And we started talking to Exco pretty fast about the kind of implications we thought it involved. And since then, we've set up a task force internally and also a small engineering group with a very strong research and development focus. And I think it's important to say that especially in the wake of BuzzFeed adopting it for their, announcing they were adopting it for quizzes quite early on. I think the industry reaction to that in general, understandably was, oh my God, what is our thing? What is our Gen AI thing? Whatever that might be. But I also think responsible news organisations have taken a bit of a step back from that because there are a lot of other questions to answer. So it's your exact question. Yes, we've been experimenting with this technology through that R&D team. And most of our focus is not about deploying. We don't have a commitment to deploy any of this technology. But first and foremost, can we experiment with it? Can we get it in front of journalists, editors and editorial staff and others and see what the experts make of it and try and assess that balance between the extraordinary things it can do and the very particular dangers it holds for a journalistic organisation. So there's lots I want to pick out from that, but just to start with where you talk about responsible news organisations taking a step back, what do you think of the general response from the industry so far? Do you think they're acting with the right level of caution but no excitement? Because 
it's it there is a lot of talk it, it maybe does feel like people are aware of its huge potential but is that are they getting the right tone it's a hard one to ask on behalf of the whole industry because <laughs> i think different people are behaving very differently there was some interesting comments out of build last week about mm -hmm. real drives to efficiency using it and i think one important thing is it's completely reasonable for different organizations with different business models and different challenges to deploy it in different ways and we all should be from my point of view i think the thing that came through very fast was its unreliability right lots of people have been talking about hallucinations we've written a few things about that and even if you think the technology is really exciting which i do as journalists, you really can't ignore the fact that it will make stuff up to the point where Google in their beta for search, integrating BARD into search, all of those results carry a health warning, which basically mm -hmm. say this may or may not be true. I can't remember the exact wording. And I think if you are a quality news organisation, that has to make you stop and ask some very big questions about whether you can actually deploy it right as it stands now. And of course, one of the other complicating factors of all of this is I am not an expert, right? I have worked on this a lot, but I am not an academic. I'm not a technician. And so the conversations about whether or not hallucinations are going to go away or whether or not that is fundamental to this technology have been fascinating, are absolutely relevant. But right now, you probably can't automate this technology into your existing processes unless you're thinking very narrowly in a very safe space. Yeah. From what you've heard, I assume there isn't a conclusion or like an answer yet to whether the hallucinations might stop or whether that's just going to okay. be part of it. There's enormous debate about that. Some people say it's just a question of refining this approach and it will get there. Other people say because it has no symbolic understanding, it will never get there or you have to connect it to tools which do have symbolic or conceptual understanding of things. I am not the right person to answer that question, but to a certain extent, I came to the conclusion that right now that doesn't matter because what we're talking about is what it can do right now. Yeah. So you wrote a piece you referred to about sort of the hallucination, about the hallucinations. Would you mind just summarising what you discovered for people that haven't seen it? Sure. So as we've discussed... We all know that if you ask ChatGPT, I don't know, to give you a list of the top 10 businesses in the UK in 2023, its training data cuts off in 2021, unless you've connected it to the internet through a plugin at this point. And that means it will make that list up, right? So if you ask it a specific question and it doesn't have enough in the training data to give you an absolutely certain answer, it, you run the risk of it imagining things. But what I wrote about was, I think, a really more specific but insidious problem and the situation we had was one of our investigative reporters was contacted by a researcher who was interested in our coverage of a particular company and was interested in the potential application of slaps or injunctions against guardian journalism from this company and the researcher contacted the journalist and said i know you've written these stories on this topic these are the headlines these are the dates it was published but I can't find them on your website. And so we went looking for them. We went through, obviously, our existing content, and then we went through information about deletions, legal and everything else, and we could find no trace of them. And ultimately, of course, what happened was this researcher had asked ChatGPT for articles that had been written about this company, 
And it had provided him with an incredibly compelling list of articles we had written. In fact, this particular reporter had written. So compelling that the reporter themselves thought, maybe I did write those, but they never existed in the first place. And back then when I wrote that piece, it was worrying enough because ChatGPT has a huge number of unique users, although there are conversations about whether or not that's slightly stalled. But I think where it starts to get really worrying and where you start to see this problem space open up into an even bigger area is when Microsoft and Google and others build these tools into places like search where one might expect a definitive and accurate answer to a certain extent, it may be generating nonsense. And it may be ascribing pieces to The Guardian or The Times or The New York Times, which never existed in the first place. And I think that has some fairly obvious repercussions for the kind of information ecosystem. Yeah, especially one of the things that people are worried about with search, I think, is if people ask at things and then it just gives you the answer, then they won't even need to, they won't even be clicking through to the news organisation to see the stuff for themselves in the first place. That is another significant question. If Google are implementing, will end up implementing it in the way that it looks from their beta, although it's just a test, so we'll see, the ramifications for the referral model are massive. There is no doubt about it. You effectively have Google's AI intermediating between your content and the user and bypassing your website. Now, obviously, Google can do what they want. But what's interesting, I think, about that and Microsoft, let's be clear, what's interesting is if that intermediation also carries a health warning which says none of this may be true, you start to ask interesting questions, I think, about whether or not Gen AI is a good technology to apply right now in a search environment in particular. And that comes back to the kind of questions we were talking about earlier about journalistic deployment of these things. When BuzzFeed said we're going to use them for personality quizzes, that seems to me a rather elegant and interesting and fun application of the technology to something that is not going to accidentally libel somebody or lie about a fact that really matters. But search ultimately is, has got to be considered as important in the information ecosystem as our website, right? So, yeah, the subject gets very big very fast. As you say, it's got the sort of double ramification of the where people get their information getting trusted information that might not be true and then also the impact on publishers' business models potentially if people aren't actually going directly to their sites. Yeah, and again, I'd underline it. It's absolutely referral, but it is also trust. So at the moment, both Google and Bing are trying to cite or identify the places where they have got the information from within the kind of generative response. But what happens if they cite us against a hallucination? You're also potentially undercutting our brand or and in a way that they can't really track and we definitely can't track because generative AI is always creating something new for an individual in response to an individual request. Yeah, it gets out of like beyond what you can follow very quickly. Exactly that. There, there are two big issues, hallucinations, search, trust, so there's a few of the issues. Another is copyright. And if publishers' business models are affected by losing search, perhaps one way that could be helped is by deals to pay for the content they're training off of, all of that. Where What's the Guardian's position? Some publishers are 
having discussions over that at the moment. Where are you at on that? Yeah, it's something we're looking at very carefully right now. We've recently published kind of three principles which will guide the way in which we think about using generative AI specifically. And the third one is with respect to others and their content. I think it comes into sharpest focus when you're looking at something like stable diffusion or mid-journey, right? The image creators. And the CEO, I think, of mid-journey said a couple of months back in an interview, there isn't really a way to get 100 million images and know where they're coming from. It would be cool if images had metadata embedded in them about the copyright owner or something, but that's not a thing. There's not a registry. And what's interesting is seeing that kind of argument come under scrutiny from multiple kind of areas at the moment. So first of all, Stable Diffusion, I think, are being sued by Getty and a collective of artists, right? Specifically on this point, you know, you could solve this problem. You could come and speak to us. There are a multitude of different things you could do as a mid-journey or a Stable Diffusion along the lines of saying, this artist has specifically opted out of our training set and we will not allow users to ask for a piece by them, for mm -hmm. example, right? Now, none of this is easy, but that doesn't mean that ignoring it all is the right thing to do. In terms of LLMs and The Guardian, we've operated an open platform for a number of years, an API, which people can absolutely pay for to get a stream of our content in a legitimate way to build a business on. But none of these companies have been to us to ask to use that, and that in itself is interesting. So, yes, we are thinking about what the value of our content is in this environment. I think, but it's not just regulation and public policy and those things, although all of those are important. There is also some interesting kind of industry level pressures being exerted now. So you've got things like Adobe releasing Firefly, which they claim is trained on owned content or copyright free content. And I'm assuming they're trying to make they're trying to attack that problem partly because they think it's going to be very hard for large corporations to adopt technology where there is some question mark about whether or not it is exploiting others' IP. And just, of course, because it's generative AI, there's another level here which makes it more complicated. And that right now is, I think, last week, VentureBeat went and talked to some artists about Adobe Firefly, and there's now some question about whether or not the claims they've made for Firefly are accurate. Now, I don't know if that's the case. But again, it's interesting if you're a business, trying to evaluate these packages is as hard. Can we take it at face value? These are really complicated questions. But one thing's for sure is news media features very significant in a large part of these common crawl sets. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely something. It's good that people are in these discussions. It's, we're not waiting to see what happens. It's People have actively started yeah. thinking about where to go next with that. So you mentioned in that your principles. Mm. I know a few publishers have written principles similar to this now, but for anyone who hasn't read them yet, what did you land on as being the important things to highlight? So we tried to be as general as we possibly could. One of the interesting things about trying to write the principles to govern a technology that is not yet mature, that is developing rapidly and is being integrated rapidly, is you can't be too specific. And I think already 
Wired, who one of the first people to come out with this kind of editorial code, have looked at theirs again recently and burnished it a bit, which is very sensible indeed, I think. So ours ended up being for the benefit of the reader, first of all. And again, broadly speaking, what that comes down to, practically speaking, is if a journalist or a part of our organisation wants to use generative AI, we want them to have to make the case for why that benefits our readers or our users. That then has to be signed off and transparently signaled to the user. Now, that transparent signaling may happen in different ways depending on what you're talking about. And it's complicated, but we do have a commitment that we don't just want people adopting this stuff because it is new. The second one is for the benefit of our mission, staff and wider organisation. There are huge conversations about efficiency going on, right, around generative AI and build last week, a lot of their focus was on efficiency. One of the interesting things about efficiency and generative AI in a news organisation right now is if you cannot automate it without a human in the loop, then the possibilities for efficiency drop if you're having to recheck it. So, and, and crucially, what we don't want to do is remove one of the things that most protects us from the potential of a huge wave of synthetic content about to engulf us, which is we are trained journalists and editors and we are human. So we are looking for use cases which are explicitly around what can this do that we cannot do? What can this do that removes more mundane tasks from experts so that they are freed up to do their job and so on and so forth? And then, as I said, the final one is with respect for those who create and own content. And that's specifically to tackle the IP issue. So just on the first two points, particularly where you just mentioned potential use cases. Obviously, I know that this, you're very much in the figuring out stage, but do you have any examples of like mundane tasks, for example, that people have been able to get rid of? So we haven't productionized any of this. Right. But what we're playing with is taking things that it can suggest to people and getting the experts in the newsroom to give us feedback about genuinely whether that's useful or not, right? So obvious examples this stuff can write headlines pretty successfully especially if those headlines are in a particular format i don't know an interview headline where usually you're going to want to quote mm. and you're usually going to want to say who the person is and you're usually going to want to contextualize that with something broader about the interview again to be clear we could never automate that even with very carefully engineered prompts it will still occasionally make up quotes, even when you ask it for a verbatim one from a given body of text. So the question there becomes, is this useful? And I can see a future in, with the technology in its current state where you might say, look, it can suggest some. If you're really having trouble with the headline, fine. But I also, especially as a former sub, don't always necessarily feel whether that's a hugely revolutionary act that is going to save huge amounts of time. There are more interesting use cases, I think, when you start to think a bit more laterally or you're really freeing up things which obstruct other behaviours. It's a good example. Live bloggers write summaries, usually by hand, every three to four hours, in a, particularly in a complicated live blog. That time would probably be better spent with them not trawling back through what they've done and rewriting it, but with covering what's actually going on at that moment. And again... This stuff is pretty good at summarisation, right? Give it some text that you own and you can usually get some useful stuff out of it. 
So again, we're playing with giving that to live bloggers at the moment, saying, is this useful? Is this the list of things that you would have picked out yourself? Can we refine it, play with the prompt? Can we get it to a place where it's useful? And again, none of this is about to be production. All we're interested in is it genuinely helpful. And I think one last example, which I think is more interesting than just what can it write. It's very good at cosplaying, right? It's no accident that loads of things on the web, like especially with the imagery stuff, it's always, yeah, where's Anderson, but Coronation Street or what have you. And usually that application is not much more than amusing, but it can do quite a good imitation of something. And I don't want it to imitate a writer, but imagine you're, I don't know, a writer on a technical beat, like you're dealing with quite complex things. That might be the environment or science. Imagine if you file your copy and at the end of that, it pops up and says, I've been pretend, I'm imagining I'm somebody with a, the reading age of a 14 year old. And I found these th three things actually quite difficult to understand. Would you consider making them more explicit or explaining them better? What I like about that particular example is it is not telling them what to do. It's entirely okay for the writer to look at that and go, no, it's completely fine. But it might also be a nice moment in the process to remind them that there is a human at the end of the process who is not as well informed as they are. And most journalists do that naturally, but sometimes it's easy if you're under a deadline or under a lot of pressure to forget that you're explaining to a general audience. No, that, that's interesting. I've heard the headlines and summary suggestions, but yeah. I hadn't heard that third one. That's, I do like that idea. So you say, obviously... They're not in use yet. Do you have any sort of target, or probably not target, but idea of when you might, if they work, start using them? Or is that very much off in the d distance or you're not worrying about timeline? I think there's a few things. I think for us to choose to deploy one of these models in a productionized environment, especially with the background of the IP conversation, that's a big call. And I think to do that, we would have to have some use cases which weren't just nice, but which are generally transformative. So right now, no, we are not under pressure to deploy this stuff at all. And again, I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that we're not. I think it is the right position to say, how does this stuff work? What is the benefit to the reader? Can you isolate that? And is it worth everything else? We're very comfortable in that respect. I, th I think... The other thing about this is it's not just about deployment, especially with the integration in search, but also with future integrations in Google Docs and Microsoft Office. There is going to be a whole group of not just journalists, but people worldwide who will be using generative AI without thinking of it as generative AI. Right? It will be the make this more concise button or it will be a button and a function and we very early on started to think that one of the biggest challenges was less how we chose to deploy it and more how might our staff completely innocently and normally start using this stuff in ways which might be challenging if they don't understand what the dangers are. So I have been going around and demonstrating it. We've had demonstrations to, I think, 270 people in the UK newsroom and to the whole of the US and Australia newsrooms. And we are going to have to move that further and do more and more of that, particularly as it trickles down into the other bits of software right across the web. So I think education in terms of normal working behaviours is almost more important here than 
what's the one thing you're going to build? The other thing I would say is there are good applications for this stuff potentially around investigations and reporting. And I think a lot of organisations, including us, have already used machine learning and data science in those environments. And I think one-off projects in those areas where we might deploy generative AI to, say, understand a block of text more or pull out insight from it, I think those things may be more likely to happen naturally. We've built it into our CMS to do this thing. Both very useful points. On the sort of education side, is that just in particular, what sort of things are you warning them against? So we've now, since we've deployed the principles, which hopefully will help staff as well as our readers understand what our position is, the next move is towards something along the lines of our current social media guidelines, a kind of internal generative AI-focused set of guidelines. We've started on that, and I imagine, I'm pretty, pretty sure, its final form will be along the lines of a series of examples of applications and then a kind of do use it for this, don't use it for that. These are the things you should worry about, right? So research is a perfect example. In most cases, mostly reporters should not be touching this stuff for research. If you go to Google and you can't find the thing you're looking for, going to ChatGPT because you can't find it there is almost certainly an extremely bad move. And that sounds obvious, but I still think there's a lot of people out in the world who don't really understand how this works and are very excited when they see it produce something without question that they haven't been able to find elsewhere. If you're talking more about, can I structure my thinking can I use it to help me structure a piece in the early stages of it? That might well work very well for some individuals. Equally, there will be some people who just do not want a co-pilot, an AI co-pilot, because it may get in their way. Just like having to work closely with another journalist sometimes, yeah. getting in each other's way, just the same <laughs> as that. So just wanted to get your take on overall, obviously there's been a question you've already referred to, build which is the most recent example of this of whether if news organizations introduce more uses of generative ai whether it could be a risk to journalist jobs because of the efficiencies made how concerned as an industry wide potential issue do you think it's a real concern or is that not something you're worried about i think a lot of people should be worried about it i and i think we have a com we have a responsibility to think very carefully right now about, about the people whose jobs might be changed by this. Right now, it feels to me that there will be people who move on efficiency. And I, I personally would say it's too early to do that. I don't believe that you can rely on it well enough. I think there are various areas where people are go people's jobs are going to be challenged, not just in journalism, but beyond that. You look at what MidJourney can do in terms of creating illustrations very quickly and I think that's going to be really challenging for a lot of artists mm -hmm. and stock photographers which is partly why they're so up in arms about the exploitation of IP equally text to voice now is so good that I think a lot of people in that kind of area reading out books or reading out long essays that could be very challenged I think I think the fact is though right now we don't know how these things are going to impact us. We don't. And I think it would take a much braver person than me to say, 
everything's going to be fine or everything's going to be a disaster. But one thing we do know is it will change jobs at some point if the technology does improve. Yeah. So often at the end of interviews like this, I do quite a forward-looking final question, but I know that, as you just said, it would be foolish to look too far ahead because we just don't know. But I guess the way I could rephrase it is, for you, where do you think the areas you're going to be looking at the most and what are you expecting to be doing in the next couple of months? Yep. We are in the kind of R&D side of things. We are looking at how well it can help us with large data sets. Like with mainly an investigations lens on that, but that's one piece of it. We're interested in how it can help us identify what our content is, right, at speed. So if that sounds obtuse, can it easily identify the ingredients in a recipe or the individuals within an article and so on and so forth? There are quite a few different options for using that right across the organisation, which helps make our content more flexible and so on and so forth. I think there is, I think the other thing is, we've talked about summarisation already, but there's no doubt that probably one of the safer areas for news organisations is what can it do with your content? It doesn't sidestep all of the questions around IP, but at least you're starting with something you... There's something else I was going to say, and now I've forgotten it. Oh my God, that's super irritating, give me a sec. <laughs> no worry. But I think ultimately, and it's the least exciting answer, and I'm really <laughs> sorry about that, but I think it is the responsible one. Alluded to this in the piece I wrote about the hallucination of Guardian articles. The more I look at this technology, the less I am asking the question, what can this technology do just on its own? Or how should we employ this technology? More, what does journalism itself stand for? And what are the values and the qualities that it embodies, which we should be accentuating or preserving? And then go back to where generative AI can help. It sounds really obvious, but I think I come back to that, that other point. We are about to be deluged by synthetic content and not just in terms of people creating it intentionally, but if every time you go to search, you are provided with it, then all creative organisations and media are going to have to have some pretty good answers about why that's not as good as what we do. And I think there are already some pretty compelling reasons behind that or things we can already say. But I think what we definitely don't want to do is end up adopting the technology in a way which ends up looking exactly the same thing as that at the end of the click-through. You want people to choose you because journalists are witnesses, they are humans, they are telling stories in conscious ways and they actually understand what the concepts are in the text that they are writing. You don't want to undermine the reason that readers would come in the first place. Yeah. And again, experimenting with this technology has made me weirdly feel quite optimistic about what value journalism brings to the world. You would hope it would, considering my job. But I think that's something that can be missed in the discourse. Everybody is very worried about it, rightly, and there are difficult questions. But there is something about looking at this technology which reminds you why what we do is incredibly important and not entirely reproducible synthetically. 
Thanks for that, Charlotte. Great to hear from Chris. Well, I'm going to ask you what your takeaways are, but more generally as well, because I know you've, you've been to a bunch of conferences this year, talk about generative AI, and you've, you, you've also written extensively about this subject. From what we've heard from Chris and just your general thinking about it, what are your, what are your big take-homes about generative AI and, and the news business from what you've sort of seen and heard so far? I think the issue of licensing is maybe something that has to be sorted out if news organizations start using it, but they still say, well, we should be being paid for our content. You know, what's to stop the companies from turning around and saying, well, you're fine to use it. So why shouldn't we? So it does make sense if if people are serious about that. And it sounds like a lot of publishers are quite a lot are starting discussions with these companies like OpenAI now. Then I do think that's something that needs to be sorted first, but it makes sense to obviously test lots of the potential use cases in a sort of beta non-live environment first so that you know what could be useful or what couldn't be useful and then at any point where we're ready then you're sort of ready to go you're not saying oh great it's regulated now now we have to figure out what we want to do with it and it does sound like lots of publishers including the guardian are um, making sure they're at that stage making sure that they're figuring out ways in which they might want to use it i think the main thing is the efficiencies obviously but um the risk to jobs some publishers sort of downplay it a bit i think and say oh no you know we're so reliant on the importance of original journalism that we could never do that or it would just be in sort of support roles but then you know as chris mentioned you've already got build making sort of over 100 redundancies not all because of ai but it does sound like they're taking that potential for efficiencies into account so I think we're at a stage where people need to think carefully about the value of the human staff they have and not rush into trying to be efficient. A time for that may come, but I don't think we're at that stage yet. Interesting what he said about education, I think, as well. I guess there's, and got, I mean, I know the Guardian and, and the FT have got guidelines in place already. I just feel like there needs to be some industry wide guidelines around the use of this stuff. So I imagine. There are, there are probably already journalists who are using it to um, cut corners and probably using it in a bit of a cowboyish fashion. I bet there are unscrupulous editors doing that as well, or un- unscrupulous publishers. I think I feel like um, that's an important sign of it as well. What do you think? We're not going to be replaced by AI too soon? In the main, no. I think, I guess there'll be a few publishers that try to do that, but I think most legitimate news business will, will see the flaw in doing that. And we'll be able to learn from watching the ones that do rush into it. Hopefully there aren't too many of those ones. You know, of course, there's going to be a few. There always are people that rush into, oh, good, we can save money doing that. But I think most know that this is the time to be ready but cautious. Yeah, I feel feel like AI and technology generally has still got so much further to go in terms of just like liberating people from um, a lot of the sort of rogue tasks that that we have to do. I'm kind of I'm kind of looking forward to um, AI just taking care of a lot of taking care of a lot of my donkey work like you know invoices for freelancers and and like some of the weird stuff we have to do in the CMS like cutting and pasting things from one place to another <laughs> so that we we'll just be sort of you know, liberated to do the um, the glamorous stuff the kind of writing and the uh, th- thinking great thoughts exactly but I think largely those are tasks that you can't cut a whole person for it it saves up a bit of time for each person but that's not like a thing that uh, like AI won't be able to do all of your job or all of any of our jobs, but those tiny bits will help us along the way, hopefully. Chris did raise this as a big concern. Obviously, it is a concern. 
but I am just I'm at the stage of hoping that most publishers will take a sort of long-term careful look at it. Okay, yeah, whatever whatever AI does, we'll have to keep a, a close eye on it because every, every now and again it just disappears for a bit of like virtual LSD, kind of comes back and does does some does some crazy stuff. Brilliant. Look, thanks, Charlotte. You've been listening to the Future of Media Explained with me, rest of the editor in chief, Dolly Ponsford, UK editor Charlotte Talibet, expertly produced by Adrian Bradley. Please like your podcast, leave a review wherever you get it, subscribe, and don't forget to check out the Press Cadet website for a whole lot more on artificial intelligence and, and all the other big gang things impacting news publishing best way to keep on top of what we're doing is go on the website and uh, and sign up for our newsletters which are all completely free uh thanks very much for listening